0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion,
1: and about making a difference in the world. In most high schools, you noticeably feel like tension. You go into high schools and there's tension, and you can see it on the students. You can see it on the teachers. You can see it on the administration. It's like a tough environment.
2: People are like, what's the difference of a bar school? And I'm like, you can feel it because people are smiling. High schools are so siloed. And so that's what so much of this work is, is just to get relationships back. If we pause and actually build relationships first, it will go much better.
0: I'm back in our D.C. studio with my sister, Debbie Shore. Welcome, Deb.
2: Yeah, good to be here. Glad you're here. Thanks.
0: And we've got a chef who knows about great food, and he knows about school food, and he's trying to make them one and the same. Dan Giusti, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And our other guest, Angie Jarabak, who has developed something called the bar model, which is a form of educating kids that is, I think, in many ways as innovative and as potentially transformational as what... Dan is doing in our nation's schools, and that's why we wanted to have the two of you on together. Thanks for being um, with us.
2: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Uh, This should be a great conversation. I've really been looking forward to it because both of you have tried to do things that haven't been done before. And I would say Debbie and I have some experience with that in starting Our Strength. I think it's one of the hardest things you could possibly do. And at least along the way, we've learned that uh, everything is harder than it looked at first. Everything takes longer (laughs) than we thought it was going to take. It's more expensive than we thought it was going to be. We've learned a lot. I think Calvin Trillin once said that every good idea eventually degenerates into hard work. Ooh. And yeah. it's true, right? There's, it, I mean, to make it happen, it's hard work. Dan, I want to start with you because sure. your your story is somewhat well-known to people in the food world, and it's it's one of those kind of man-bites-dog stories. <laughs> you, you did something that nobody thought a chef would do, which was leave the fine dining scene sure. to devote yourself to a real purpose, a social purpose of really coming to the rescue of our nation's kids who need to eat better and need to be healthier and need to do better in school. And I know you've told this story uh, before and you've been asked about it before, but the the two things I'm, I know that our listeners will be interested in is what was your path to cooking in the first place? Right, and then when did that? What was that moment? Uh, and Debbie and I had talked about this earlier. We both had the same question. What was that moment where you said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a different road at, right. at this fork in the road"? But I know that you started cooking here in Washington D.C. You were at Clyde's in 1789. Yeah, yeah I tell, mean, tell us where it started.
1: Began. Yeah, so basically, uh, where it started is why ultimately I got back to doing what I'm doing now. And you know, I come from a big Italian family and cooking was important in my family. I have one aunt in particular where we like to go to her house because she's the best cook. And that's why I feel like we always felt we wanted to go to her house is because the food was the best. I feel like every family has that one family member that if it's a holiday, you want to go there. And alternatively, there's like people in your family, you don't want to go to their house because they don't cook very well. But then I came to realize like I'm a big eater. I eat everything. And I have, I have brothers and sisters and also nieces and nephews who don't eat everything. And, they really like going there too. So I realized it's not so much about the fact that the food is so good. It's that she's really great at hosting people and making you feel comfortable, and you really wanted to just be there. And subconsciously, growing up, like she was like the favorite in our family, and I just love that. And I started to cook. I started to become interested in cooking. Uh, when I got to high school, I and did. Did she teach you to cook, your aunt, or well, or it was just the influence. No, or the inspiration? I mean she's she's she essentially is the kind of person that even now when I go there and I'm like I want to do something she. God forbid I touch anything. I have to I have to sit there and choose to cook for me. But initially it was just this idea that she influenced me to just think about cooking as a career. It had nothing to do with fancy restaurants or big time chefs. It was just the idea of cooking for people. So when I went to high school, everybody's talking about college. I said, you know, what? I want to be a chef. And that's where it started. I got a job at Clyde's of Georgetown, started working, loved working in a restaurant. I loved the idea of hearing that people were happy about the food. And that's all it was for me. Then I went to culinary school right after high school, and then quickly it was about fine dining. So was Culinary Institute of America at High Cul- Park? Yeah, mm-hmm. and all it was about was where can you go? You need to go to the top, you need to work in fine dining, you need to work in New York City, you need to work here. And really from that point on, until I got to Noma, that's all it was about. It was literally, it's like the whole mentality behind cooking for me changed. It was cooking for myself. It was the idea of I wanted to rise to the top, I wanted to cook the food that I wanted to cook, and again, it got me to Noma. I became the head chef at Noma.
0: And describe what Noma is. I, some, some of us in the culinary community know, but not everybody. Sure.
1: So Noma is a restaurant in Copenhagen that there is a list out there, as strange as it may, may sound, particularly because it's administered by a water company, San Pellegrino. But it, it rates the top restaurants in the world, the top 50 and during the time that I was there, it was the top restaurant in the world for four years. It
0: became a destination restaurant. People all over the world made a trip
1: just to Copenhagen yeah. to eat at No, it, it essentially Wait, it,
3: it became number one when you were there cooking. Or? It was
1: number one before I okay. was there, and like then, you
3: didn't. It didn't slip while you were there. It did.
1: It did, and then we got it back though. So you oh, can the look pressure. At that in a couple of ways, oh, yeah, was a lot of pressure, but it it made Copenhagen like a destination city, actually. Like if you go to Copenhagen now, there's all kinds of restaurants there. But anyway, it's a very avant-garde place where the majority of food is foraged. And quite frankly, it's pretty much dictated what's happening in a lot of restaurants around the world for the past you know decade. So I went there, became the head chef, and it really gave me the confidence to kind of Look at what i'm doing why I was doing it and when it was time to move on it wasn't because I was burnt out I really still liked the idea of working in a restaurant It had nothing to do with not liking the restaurant. It was just a tremendous amount of pressure working there And it was time to move on But I had the confidence to just say you know what like I didn't get into cooking to do this in the first place It had nothing to do with fine dining. This isn't what i'm most passionate about I knew I wanted to cook for more people you know in a place like noma we were 45 to 50 chefs Cooking for forty-five people so this at a is time, rarefied atmosphere, right? And you're cooking for people who obviously have the means to do whatever they want. Beyond that, though, in a restaurant, the one thing you don't get to do is cook for people very often. Particularly in a restaurant like Noma, where you're cooking for people once in a lifetime. So I knew I wanted to cook for a lot of people, and I maybe more importantly, I wanted to cook for them all the time. In, in, in a way that you could really change the way they're living their lives and the way they're eating and the way they're thinking about food. So that's really kind of where the thinking started. To How do I do that? What's the way to do this? And I think you could think of a variety of ways to do it, but essentially I came to the idea of institutional food really checks off all those boxes, whether it's in a public school, whether it's in a hospital, whether it's in a prison, whether it's in a senior care center. You're cooking for people that have to be there, these are typically people that really need good food. Uh, they're in a stage of their life where they're in a, they're in a, a position that they need nutrition. Uh, this food has been neglected and you're cooking for these people all the time. So this kind of was the starting point of this and schools in particular for me, it's close to my heart, the idea of being around young people and, and getting them early and getting them to think differently about food and kind of uh, influencing them to to have better eating habits and then also generally just Being a positive role model uh, in the schools that we're in, you see a lot of kids that they're really in positions that it's quite challenging. And to be around and to kind of influence them in a positive way through food uh, is a really exciting thing. So that's kind of how the whole idea started.
0: And so you had this instinct you wanted to cook for a lot of people and make a difference. And then you went, you kind of developed the idea. It wasn't just school meals need to be better and I'm going to go fix those. You, you, You found it, you looked for it, you searched for it.
1: Yeah, I searched for it. And I think the idea was that you know the thing that sealed it for me was i was trying to think of how i could cook for a lot of people and i did want to do it at scale the idea of say creating a fast casual or fast food restaurant to serve low cost meals to people that were wholesome it seemed slightly irresponsible again because there's so much food waste the idea of cooking a lot more food so the idea of going into a place where food was already being made But it wasn't necessarily receiving the attention that it should receive, like many other spaces do, seemed like the responsible way to do that. Beyond that, all the kitchen spaces in these institutions typically have been neglected just the same. They're not organized like a regular professional kitchen. No thought has been put into them. And the staff that's working in these institutional kitchens haven't been trained properly. So it just seemed, again, like the way to do it. Like go in. There's a lot of people out there already making food. Work with those people. Train them. Organize the kitchen spaces and make that food better that's already being prepared. And
0: I've heard you say um, on a CBS Sunday morning interview um, about the kids that they don't have any choices, right? They just just get what they get. And so – You've got to make it good, and you really felt that.
1: It's a captive audience, and, like, it's this idea that as an adult, you know, you have all the information in front of you on the Internet now. You can make a choice as to where you want to go. If you go eat somewhere and it's not good, well, you made a choice. You could have really researched it. These kids have absolutely no choice. They're there every day. Obviously, we can try to give offer as much variety as we can, but that's even quite difficult within the constraints that we face. But they have to show up every single day. It's almost that the issue is not even that they're kids. People are like, well, kids are picky. If you took 600 adults and put them in the same place every single day and only offered them two to three things that they couldn't make really many decisions on, they couldn't customize it, they'd probably a good percentage of them would probably become disgruntled at some point. So it is just a challenge in that sense. Yeah, Angie, you uh, had
0: a set of insights also about – serving people and particularly serving young people in schools and doing things differently than they've been done before. Tell us a little bit about where that started for you and how it led to Barr.
2: Sure. So the background's a little bit interesting. So because you went back to high school, I will too. So in college, I had a real hard time picking a major, ended up being a music performance major.
0: Where were you in school?
2: um, St. Ben's Uh up in um, uh, Minnesota Mm -hmm. and got a teaching degree. Turns out, didn't love the teaching, but really liked working with kids individually, so I got my counseling license. So got my first job at a first-ring suburb right outside of Minneapolis and was working there, and half the ninth graders were failing every year. So I had five years running where 50% of the kids are failing a class.
0: And where was this? What school?
2: St. Louis Park, Minnesota
0: half the kids were failing. Half
2: the kids were failing. So I went to the administrator. I'm not feeling successful, as you can imagine, and said, I need to resign. Like these kids need to pass their classes in ninth grade to be able to graduate in time. And he said, well, this isn't our school and this isn't you. This is the national average. About 40 to 50 percent of ninth graders fail a class, which is still the case.
3: But nobody else in the school is kind of
2: you know, raising the flag. I right, mean, right. It's, right.
3: How could you be the first one? Absolutely, you
2: know? because people typically don't look at ninth grade failure rates. You only look at graduation and depending oh, on how the state kind of collects that data, mm. the graduation rate may or may not have included ninth grade. So I'm in charge of ninth graders. I'm like, half of them are failing a class. And a lot of the kids who are failing are kids who we wouldn't necessarily think that they're gonna fail. So like I'd call you in and say, Dan, you're failing your know, physical education. And he's like, Miss Jerebec, everyone's failing. No big deal. And so there's this pure normal culture. Yes. Yeah. And so there was no kind of stigma attached with failing. And then by the time they figured out that, oh we're failing that class in ninth grade now has put some pretty big roadblocks in as I'm trying to graduate in time or look at colleges. So the principal's like, this is not us. This is not you. You should come up with something different. So I will go back to the fact that I'm a pretty creative person. So I'm like, well, this, like, the school's not working the right way. To your point, I'm like, I've got a ton of passionate adults. I got talented kids, and I got a lot of adults stuck in silos. And I'm, the school counselor, have this access to information no one else has. Because I know that, you know, Debbie, you're really talented at, you know, at art, but you're not doing anything in math. But the math teacher thinks you're lazy, and I know you're not lazy. It's just that you haven't connected with the math teacher. So kind of spent the summer and came up with this new model of doing school. Came to the principal and said, i got a new way to do things. Had a fantastic administrator who said, okay, as long as you come up with a grant to try it, give it a run. And so within the first year, we cut our failure rates in half. And so um, we it's now been in place for 20 years. We're um, Describe
0: the model. What are the ingredients so th- of the model?
2: There's two pillars. One is...
0: Why is it called bar, first of all?
2: Building assets, reducing risks. Two pillars. And they're so, like obvious one is you need to build relationships you got to have relationships from staff to student, student to student, and staff to staff. And you really need healthy relationships staff to staff if you're going to address like really hard topics, which typically schools don't have. You're typically in a department, and a math teacher is not going to talk to an English you know teacher, especially about a student. So you got to pull those silos apart. The next one is data. You need to open up that data system so that math teacher needs to know that that student is doing well in English. They need to know what their passions are, and everyone's got to be attentive to qualitative data. People in school see so many things, and you're not trained to look for it and share it. So I have a kind of quick illustration of the qualitative data, and this is like a powerful example, but it happens all across the country. So we had a school that was doing this model right away, had three teachers meeting together. They're like, I don't know that we really need to do this, but one teacher says, I've got two girls skipping my class every Friday and Monday, 14-year-old girls, ninth graders. So there's someone there that's taking the information within the school. And the next teacher says, you know what? I was walking through the lunchroom. They're not sitting at the ninth grade table. They're hanging with a bunch of older boys. Someone should give them a quiet lunch. Next teacher says, you know, they're not making dress code. Someone should call them in, give them a dress code violation. So the person who was there getting the information says, I'll come back. Basically been given a directive to give consequences to the kids. They come back and it turns out they're all being sex trafficked. And they're being shipped out Thursday night. They're being shipped back Monday night. So none of these things... pretty intense. Yes.
3: And and it, it can't be an isolated case.
2: Not. There was a full orchestration. You know, police ended up being involved. But the reality is all of those observations for an individual would not have been that powerful until we put them together. So both in terms of the number of absolute... Horrible situation students are in that these are caring adults that want to help, but you've got to be able to break up those silos and share that information as well as powerful things.
3: I'm, I'm just curious wow, there's just a lot there to, <laughs> to, uh, to un- unpack, but yeah. I'm curious about the kind of the demographic of the school, you know, when you, when you got there um, and w- when you talked about the relationships that you're building staff to students, student to te- I noticed you didn't say anything about the parents, I don't think it's i feel like you would have to have some family connection in order to, to make that happen?
2: Yep. So we have two pillars, but there's eight components. One of the components is family engagement. And so it absolutely is critical that you're engaging the community, you're engaging the families, and that that's kind of a key piece. But when we're kind of talking these guiding principles, we're like data relationships, data relationships. But then there are things that have to happen. In terms of the the school, it was about um, 80% free and reduced lunch, you know, um, high mobility. But I think the, I mean, we're in 140 schools now. So I think an, an how another many
3: states is how many cities are states
2: sixteen states in DC oh. and we're ninety in eight districts. So the other piece is the research. So we've we're the only model to get um, all three of the um, investment innovation research grants. So we've been doing within school randomized control trials. So we train adults, but we measure the impact on kids. So half the um, kids are uh, assigned to adults that are trained in the model. Half the kids have school as usual. So that way, if the school wins the basketball championship, you can't say. Well, that was something unique. And at the end of the year, when you're training the adults this way, the students have higher um, standardized test scores. They have higher GPAs, lower failure rates, and they're happier. So the students are happier and the, the staff's happier.
3: I, I was so struck by, you know, those data points you just did, you know, the higher GPA, probably higher in t- attendance, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, fewer yeah. disciplinary mm-hmm. problems, which are exactly the things that we see. Right. With the no canary campaign when kids are getting breakfast. Mm-hmm. All those things are happening as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, just to go back for a minute to the sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is that a thing in our schools? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like how many kids were involved at this school?
2: Well, so at this school, there ended up being about a dozen. You know, but it was identified in, in week two. And there were two 14 year old girls who once again would have all been identified as breaking rules. Parents and didn't know. They were in yeah. They're in foster
3: care. They're in foster care. All of them were in foster
2: mm-hmm. care. So, but it's just, it's the, it continues to go back to, I think, the point that you were making. There is talented adults, caring adults that are in this place. And how do we re-equip them sure. to be able to serve better? And I think that's the piece that I think that we're finding. I mean, there's just, there's such capacity and they're there. Right. And they want to do, you know, this this work. And we need to give them another way of, of doing it. You I know? think that's
1: right. I think there's there's a lot of organizations out there who are going into schools to almost do something on their own when there's already a lot of great people working in schools, and it's just a matter of how much investment has been put into those individuals to train them and give them the tools to do things. And that's, that's a big piece, and there's a lot of folks out there and working in schools. It's a tough job, and they're the ones who are always asked to follow through with every initiative. They're asked to do a variety of things and how much time is invested in them to give them those tools, and I think that's a huge problem. Dan Angie was talking
0: about the uh, importance of relationships, and I've heard sure. you talk about kids need to see who's cooking their food, right? Yep. Like you come out there, you want them to know that there's a person and there's a face yep. behind it, and that there's the you know the meaning that sure. that gives it.
1: I think it's more important than than the food itself. Honestly, I think you're kidding yourself if you're a chef that, and you think food is more important than anything else. If the personal interaction, whether it's in a restaurant, whether it's in a school, is always going to be more important. I always think that's that's what it is. Like you could serve the best food in a school that's ever been served tomorrow. It doesn't mean anything. If the kids aren't, you know, identifying that this food was cooked by someone that they understand, they know, they've met, they feel comfortable with, um, it might not mean anything to them. So we spend a lot of time to try to just make the kids feel comfortable. You're not going to have kids want to try new things uh, just randomly. Some might. Some are adventurous. Some might say, "Oh, I want to try something," or they might be in a household where that is common practice. They're trying new foods and things like that.
3: So, in the schools, you're working with the the lunch ladies, right? Okay, could be, you know. And what you just said about relationships, we know that the lunch ladies have such a presence sure. in the school. So, you know, the the adds the relationships, sort either transition from them to you or right. together,
1: you know. Well, what it is is so we we put chefs into schools. We work with the staff that was previously there. To essentially train them and give them the tools to do this. Now, unfortunately, you can have you can have the cafeteria staff be super hardworking, doing their job day in day out, and have been doing it for a very long time. But stereotypically, and it is the truth, they are quite often very much not respected. Unfortunately, don't get me wrong. There are schools where the the kids really do uh, relate with the cafeteria staff. They talk to them. They say thank you. But in your average school kitchen, your average school cafeteria, if you go there and you just watch lunch, particularly at the higher grades in high school, it's very rare that you hear a student say thank you or say hello or smile. And then, and obviously this wears on the cafeteria staff. And then it starts to, this relationship really starts to deteriorate. So, one place we've had success with, well, I should backtrack and say, too, if you're on the cafeteria staff, a lot of which of these people cook at home. And they take pride in cooking. They cook for their families. They cook for themselves. They're good cooks. But within their cafeteria, they're making food that they don't like, they don't think is good. They know the kids don't like it. And if you can imagine, if you're someone who cooks and is passionate about cooking and proud that you know how to cook, the fact that you are literally serving kids food that you know is not good, that they don't enjoy, it really creates strain on this whole situation. So going into the schools, training the staff, giving them the confidence, also you know improving the quality of the food so they feel good about it, they're proud about it, it really starts to change the relationship. So
3: oh, I'm well, just going to say, are, are you changing the um, – you're procuring different food or you're working with the food that's there, a little bit of both?
1: Yeah, a little bit of both. I think the thing that a lot of folks don't understand is that the National School Lunch Program – really does make it very challenging to make changes so there's a lot of procurement rules so essentially what happens is i think it's important to put into context if you're a public school and you and you participate in the national school lunch program which most do because that's where the federal reimbursement comes in essentially you serve a meal when you serve that meal it has to meet very strict nutritional guidelines dictated by the usda and then you get a certain amount of money back this year for lunch in particular is three dollars and 41 cents Because you're getting money from the federal government, there are a lot of strings attached to that money. So if you bring in a service like a consultancy like ours, essentially, or you bring in a new product, a type of vegetable, everything has to go through uh, processes. So it's not easy, even if you live in a place that's surrounded by farms, to just say, wow, that produce is great. The price is right. I'm going to go get it. It doesn't work that way. So it really is challenging. And if you can imagine, this is one of the things, obviously, we talk about chefs and their ability to cook and train staff. But if you're a food service director and do not have a lot of experience in food procurement, the idea of working with the local farmer and finding a way to make that happen could really be challenging. So you never end up doing that. So that's something we've been able to start to help uh, food service programs do as well.
0: So I wanna backtrack uh, sure. even a little bit more with both of you because we've heard the idea and the insights that you both had. I wanna hear how you got started. So like, what was the first school? How'd you do it? You've created an organization sure. called Brigade. Right. Um, tell us, you know, what did it take to get this going? Yes. And then I want to hear the same thing with, you know, the way you've Angie scaled your program.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the initial idea was started. I started a company. It's important to say it is a for profit company. And that was very intentional to do that. Um, because I didn't necessarily know how to get into school food. Um, and I didn't see a model that was in line with the way I was thinking. So I started the company because I was at Noma, uh, A few weeks before I left, the Washington Post wrote a profile about me. A lot of people from around the United States wrote to me. Uh, food service directors, superintendents, parents. I mean, I was driving or I spent basically uh, two months driving around the United States meeting with anyone who had contacted me. I was having lunch with parents in their houses, talking talking to anyone about school food. Um, one of the people that reached out to me was the superintendent of New London Public Schools. Again, I had actually originally come to D.C. I was thinking like big cities, obviously D.C. This was still under the Obama administration. So there was a great interest in improving school food. Uh, but this gentleman, who is the superintendent of New London Public Schools in Connecticut, um, it's a town, a very small town of 25,000 people, equidistant between uh, Boston and New York, uh, a town where it really represents the idea that Connecticut is is this the state with the largest disparity between poverty and wealth. One in four people in New London is under the poverty line, surrounded by very affluent uh, little org- towns. So I went there. I met with the superintendent. He had me stay there for a week, which was interesting because, again, it was this, like, tiny little town. Met with the mayor, met with every school principal, met with kids. Just a guy who really got it. He knew what this would take. I love the town. It seemed like a town that could use something like this and that would appreciate something like this. So I literally just said, okay, let's try to do it here. Uh, I moved. I moved to New London. And we had to go through the process. I had to present to the Board of Education in a small meeting that you see kind of on public access television where it's very official and it's televised and no one's watching it and all these things. And I was super nervous and and they approved it. And it just started there. I literally worked with New London Public Schools and this superintendent to really and just listen to them. I knew I wanted to put chefs in schools, but I didn't really know the best way to do it and, and the best way to have the right relationship so this would be received well. So I worked with them to understand what the best relationship would be, and that's where we started. And we literally just started to hire chefs. Uh, Those chefs worked for New London Public Schools, and we just started to put chefs in schools. And in a very simple way, those chefs just started to take food that was primarily heat and serve and start to transition that food into scratch cooking. And that's where this model makes a lot of sense. It's not really complicated. It's taking chefs who are trained to essentially do this work and put them in the environment to do it. The most complicated piece is finding the right chefs to do this work.
3: I'm sure you know Bill Telepan
1: yep. from wellness in Schools, yep.
3: and they do something similar. Sure. There, are there differences there?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, so Bill Telepan works for wellness in the schools, uh, primarily based in New York City, but now expanding outside of New York City. So we do work with them. We have a good relationship with them. Their model is um, training in kitchens. It's also physical education. It's also Uh, food education, food and nutrition education. So what we, kind of the approach that we take, and it's a big topic. Honestly, a lot of people ask us, do you do education in the classrooms? Do you do tasting? Do you do this? they are staying focused. We take a very practical approach. I mean, when the conversation happens, it's exciting to talk about school gardens. It's exciting to talk about uh, food education. It's exciting to talk about these things. It's not maybe so sexy to talk about training, And practicality regarding going into a kitchen and organizing it, getting the staff, um, you know, getting standards and procedures implemented. These are all kind of behind the scenes things, you know, like at, at Enoma, nobody talks about the fact that the standards and procedures that were in place at a restaurant like that were so high because no one wants to talk about that. You talk about the food. Everybody wants to talk about the menu, the food. But before you get there... You really have to get these kitchens organized and you have to make sure they're equipped properly. So we do a lot of that as well. So we kind of even, we basically took a model that was looking at a variety of things. And when we first started, we we're going to approach many different topics and and really whittled it down to focusing on operations in a school kitchen.
0: Uh, in a town like New London or anywhere you've been, what kind of pushback do you get when a chef with your credentials comes in and says, I'm going to change the food system?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always thought that I will say coming from Noma, if I chose to open a restaurant, it would have been great. It would have really helped me out. Um, Getting into this work, it it always makes people a a bit, or I should say very skeptical as to why I'm doing this and why I've ended up, for example, in New London. So when it came to presenting this idea at the Board of Education meeting, there were seven board members, one of which during the meeting actually asked me how much money I've made during my career. He was very concerned, and he thought it was very strange that I was in New London, Connecticut, a place I had no connection to, and that I come from this big fancy restaurant. Why am I in this town? Am I just here to become rich off of this small school district? That was a question. Um, After the day after that meeting, in the New London Day online, this tiny little publication, there was like 95 comments, if you can imagine. And this little publication, one of which will always stand out in my mind, always remember it, is why don't we just send kids to school in limousines? It was because this, we're going to feed them well. It was this idea that the idea of putting a chef of this caliber, if you will, in a school was the most like extraneous luxury that should never happen. And those are, you know, that was littered among other comments that said like, "I ate terrible school food as a kid, and I turned all, you know, out all right." Even <laughs> though this is a guy making a comment on the New London Day website at three thirty in the morning, you know, it's like I don't know, I don't know how you turned out. To be honest with you. But. Nonetheless, it was like there is definitely a lot of skepticism. Yeah,
3: it's good. You're not easily discouraged. This is a good thing.
1: Oh, I'm not. In fact, it motivates me even more because you know what? It doesn't stop. um, Everywhere we go, every school we go in, and every district we go into, there's a lot of skepticism as to why we're there. Even and I would even say, and this is a frustrating thing, a lot of people in the space who do this work and who've done this work for a long time look at me as someone who is coming in from a different place. Because we've received a decent amount of press because of my background at Noma, it's like we don't belong. Like we've done something wrong. Um, it's really tough. Like we, we've, I, 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 it's hard to explain for me. But they feel as though we're we're working within different rules and different parameters, and it's easier for me to do things because of my background. It's like, so you know, that will that will just have to be the way it is for some time, and and we'll keep going, and people realize that we're the real deal.
0: Um Angie, you talked about having uh initially at your school a very enlightened administrator who embraced and gave you this charge to go out and do this um but then how did you take it to the next step? What kind of challenges did you face in terms of getting this into other communities
2: right so about 10 years, we did this for about a decade at the school I was at. And I kept thinking, this is so obvious. Every school should be working like this, that we should be opening up this communication. We should be, you know, making sure that we are um, making sure that everyone has data and kind of accessing to the, um, the relationships that are necessary. That being said, it wasn't happening. So needless to say, um, the Obama administration had a competition, an I-3 competition. And I thought... I-3 meaning... Investing in innovation... Ah, okay. Basically, they're like looking for things that are working in schools and could this be replicated in other settings and could it withstand kind of a high level of research? So I thought, well, this this should be obvious. So I wrote this, you know, in my um, it was a custodian's closet was my office and thought, well, I should, you know, have this work and I am in. Midwest suburbs, and I should work in an urban setting in the West Coast and um, rural in the East Coast. should work in all settings. It should matter kind of what the schools are like, and they should work these different places. So big competition, and our application was ranked number two. So big winner. I'm going to be honest. I don't know anybody outside of Minnesota, so I'm now on listservs trying to find, can I find some schools that would maybe want to try this new model that I've made up, and by the way, work with you know, the federal government and do a big research study. Super fortunate when I did, found a school in Bucksport, Maine, as well as, so rural Maine, and Hemet, California, so right in Riverside, California. And the school in Riverside, California also agreed to do a within-school randomized control trial. So that's a pretty kind of heavy ask to say, can you both do this model? And I want to do a big research study. So the other piece was we we're going to do a relationship intervention. And typically, if you're going to improve academics, you double-dose. So if you're not good at math, you're going to take two math classes. If you're not you know, doing well at something, we're going to give you a curriculum, a technology. And I'm saying we double in on relationships. So we're gonna have relationships be the key and kids will do better. So in particular at the secondary level, you don't move standardized test scores by building relationships, in particular with the current staff. I'm saying the staff that's there knows the kids. They know the community. We're not gonna replace the staff. We just have to give them a different way of operating. So at the end of that first year, everyone did better and so then the, I got the next grant I'm like let's apply for another grant so we're going to do 11 more within school randomized control trials
3: but you're not you're not adding staff to surround these kids you're it's, changing their jobs it's
2: professional development and coaching so we go into whatever school, and we're going to give them training and coaching to do this model difference. We're on all the approved lists, the evidence for ESSA. So we're an approved list for reading. We're an approved list for math. We're an approved list also for social-emotional. We're also an approved list for risk re- you know, reduction. So we're on many approved lists so schools can access um, federal funds to bring the training and coaching in. Oh, wow. So That's big time so but the growth has all been based on the study so subsequently superintendents would tell another superintendent you know they're like why are your kids doing better because i think the other really important piece i want to reference is as much as everyone's doing better the gaps are closing black latinx and low-income students are exponentially doing better so this level of attentiveness when you're looking at data and you're looking at relationships and you're looking at strengths those gaps are closing. So those students are both not feeling at the same rate, but they're in more AP classes. They're graduating at a higher rate. So this really big commitment to equity because you have adults in the building that want to be able to You know, connect with these students and have them do well. And that's what this model is able to do. So you can have everyone do better. So it's not just for students that are struggling, but in addition to everyone doing better, you're getting to those students that you know need that attentiveness.
0: Angie, in terms of the ideas and the insights that you brought forth, what type of skepticism and resistance have you received or experienced? And what have you done to overcome it?
2: So that's an. Notable barrier. So even though people aren't pleased with the system, it's a system they know. So they like to hang on to it. So that is a a challenge. So... I'll be honest, I initially thought there'd be a groundswell of teachers that would just kind of push this up, and schools are so hierarchical. Typically, it's been a top-down mandate, and oftentimes it's been a mandate because the school is in a position that they either have to fire all their teachers or do something different, and this is another thing they could do instead. So they're like, okay, I'll take the training on relationships and data before I'll have half my friends be fired. The reality is after they do it, they love it. So we are just having this now, this groundswell of the expansion is other teachers telling other teachers, or when you go to a new school, you're like, guys, we have to do school this way. So the experience is what the motivation has been. But in terms of getting in, it has been, you're forced to do this.
0: Dan, tell us a little bit about, in addition to what you do in the kitchen and what you've done with the food, what you do in the front of the house to just make the entire experience uh, better
1: for kids. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of things that need to be improved in most cases when you're talking about the entire eating and cafeteria experience. Um, quite often cafeteria spaces are not the nicest spaces. Um, so there's a lot to, to be desired in terms of what can be improved there. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes it's not quite often cafeterias are in the basement or in in a location of the school where there are no windows. That's obviously not a great start. Um, so that that can be easy in some places and more difficult in other places. But one place where I feel like we have direct ability to make impact is obviously by putting these chefs into schools and working with the staff. The, this is, again, a relationship thing. So our ability to follow up with students one-on-one is the most important thing. I think we've found that just handing surveys out, again, soliciting information that way is not great. And that's typically when we receive comments like try harder. Or what can we do better? Everything. You know, kids think it's funny to just like write these kind of comments. When you go into the cafeteria and you sit down with a group of students very casually, and what we found is like instead of it being very robotic, because when we first started, we'd sit down with the students and be like, "How's how's lunch today? Then the next day, how's lunch today? Then the next day, how's lunch today? Do you like vegetables? It becomes super robotic. So instead... Just talk to them. We just talked. Oh, how was your weekend? How's football going? How's this going? And then, surely enough, because you're the chef or you're the person running the kitchen, they will then come to you when the time comes to tell you either that they like the food or that they don't like the food and why, and actually will take time to articulate as to why. It's not just gross anymore. It's, you know, I had the chicken today and it was actually kind of hard to eat with, you know, this way. So, we just find like the idea of getting into the cafeteria and it's challenging. You have a lunch wave of 300 kids and they have 18 minutes to eat, you know, between serving them properly and efficiently and then finding time to get in the cafeteria. But you have to do it. You have to be present just like in a restaurant. You know, we don't have waiters or managers, if you will, to do that. You're kind of a, a, a one team has to do everything. But being present in the cafeteria while students are eating, I think, is the best way to get information, also to create relationships, and probably the one way in which we have the ability to make impact in terms of the front of the house, if you will.
0: And I guess like the ninth graders who uh, have nothing to compare it to, right? You don't know what you don't know. You couldn't have probably envisioned some of these challenges before you got into it. Sure, yeah. Right?
1: Some of the challenges, you know, the, the 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 challenges that are in regards to the food, yeah, as a chef, you know what you're going to you face. Know. You know, okay, the budget's very low. But the you're... bureaucracy of New York
0: City's Department of Education.
1: Well, I will say that there's bureaucracy that you deal with, and it's not even that you don't expect it. It's that literally... You can't even get answers about some of these things. There's things that happen, processes, the way contracts are given or not given or how communication happens. And you can literally ask 20 people to explain it to you, how it works. So, you know, moving forward, and it's actually difficult to even get that real information. So it is a little frustrating and it's a lot of unexpected things. And. You know, so you see a lot of things too, and every every stage is different. You know, Angie's talking about the high schools, particularly, and we talk about ninth grade, like this relationship situation. I mean, if you go to an elementary school, your average elementary school, and then you go into high school across the street, you, in most high schools, you noticeably feel like tension. You go into high schools, and there's tension, and you can see it on the students, you can see it on the teachers, you can see it on the administration. It's like a tough environment. Every high school you go into, you feel it. So it's like a very different situation dealing with a cafeteria staff in a high school versus in an elementary school. You know, people are a little more like lighthearted, happy-go-lucky in high school. It's like you think you, and, and I hate to say it, but in a lot of, in, in the way high schools are treated, it's like you're in a prison. It's like discipline. It's like we have to rein everyone in. We have to make lunchtime shorter because kids are going to be out of order and we don't trust kids and we're not going to talk to kids and get friendly with kids. It's crazy. Uh, Angie, Mm -hmm. does that align with your experience?
2: Actually, it's interesting you say that because I say people are like, what's the difference of a bar school? And I'm like, you can feel it. I'm sure so, you can. I mean, you walk in the school and you can feel, you feel it, it in five minutes because people are smiling, you know, and in particular, I mean, because high schools are so siloed. I mean, those departments, like a math department stays in the math department. You eat with the math department. You don't talk. And if you do talk, it's about curriculum. It's not about, you know, even, you know, do you have kids as a fellow colleague? And so that's what so much of this work is, is just to get relationships back. You know, it's it's fascinating. You have thousands of people there, but people aren't talking about relationships or that relationships are secondary like after we do you know grind it out get them you know the, the, the content down where you it's like if we pause and actually build relationships first it will go much better, you know, in terms of all the adults working together as well as the kids working together, and and how we interact. But that feeling piece, I totally get. You walk in, and you can, I mean, the posturing and kind of anyone you know, can we're here. feel it. Mm-hmm. You,
1: it's like it's. I would even say before five minutes, like mm-hmm. the minute you walk, because mm-hmm. usually someone has to let you in. Yes. To a school, mm-hmm. usually they yes. should, uh-huh. and you go into a school, and it's like immediate. You've and even for example, in New York City, they have resource officers at the front as of, police officers at every single school even them, they're the same group of people technically, but depending on what school they're in, you can tell that there's just more of a community feel. I feel like in, in a lot of schools, unfortunately, literally it's students have to show up. It's you know, They have to come to school to learn. And as a teacher or, or a staff member, you have to show up to teach kids or provide another service. There's nothing else to it. It's not like we're spending eight hours a day here. Let's Let's develop relationships. Let's let's be comfortable. It's like, it's just mandatory. And you just feel it. And it's really like off-putting, to be honest with you.
0: Dan, um, do you ever miss it? Noma 1789, that,
1: you know, that rarefied atmosphere that we talked about. You know, being at Noma was like really cool. It's a very special restaurant. And I I always loved like the intensity of it. But I will say. Do it, you
3: still have influence there? We want to go? Yes. <laughs> okay. Just
1: checking. I do.
0: Well, she's mm-hmm. been, that's the only question she's really yeah. been uh, interested I'll in. Just it's been in my started. head for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but the idea that like. I yeah, have the same question. You know, I try to get younger people who are getting in this career to really think about it. There's a lot of ways you can cook professionally. And again, you are very much kind of funneled into cooking and fine dining. So I've the only job I've ever had in my whole life has been cooking. But I've never been happier with what I do now. This is how I want to do it. Um, but it took me a long time to get there. And I'm always trying to, like, visit a lot of culinary schools and say, look, don't think you need to cook in a restaurant. There's a lot of ways you can cook, a lot of different ways to do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, as much as I could say I kind of miss it sometimes, not really. I would say genuinely I'm more happy than I've ever been. Yeah. And, and do you see other young
0: chefs kind of gravitating towards this? Or do, or do they have to go through what you went through first right. to know? Right.
1: No, you know, I think it's it's a little bit of both. We've seen some young chefs join us early on and they have their days where they're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it, I think if it's a bad day and they have some kids that aren't happy, they're thinking to themselves, should I be doing this or should I be working in so-and-so fine dining restaurant? You definitely need to be confident in yourself and not worry about what other people are going to think. Do you know how to cook? Do you not know how to cook? I can I can say that. No one questions my ability as a chef because of my background. You can't have an ego, and you have to be confident. So if you can do that at a young age out of culinary school, then it's perfect. I feel like a lot of young chefs do need to get something out of their system. They need to go and prove them to themselves that I, I can cook. I know I can cook, so I don't need to have an ego. I don't need to prove... To this six-year-old kid that I need, to, you know, that I can cook, I can put a lot of effort into making something very simple and 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 get gratification in that. So, I think it depends on the person, but I would like to think that moving forward, a lot of uh, young people will really consider the variety of ways that they can cook. Particularly now, because they are suited to um, help alleviate a lot of problems around the world. There's a lot of things that involve food, and I think there's a lot of young chefs who could get involved in an operational way. I always tell a lot of young chefs, there's a lot of great ideas out there, a lot of smart people coming up with great ideas in terms of how they can help people through food. But a lot of them don't have the operational sense to make that happen. And these young people coming out of culinary school, the right people to go and work with these, these organizations, whether for-profit companies, non-profit companies, and really help them bring these, these ideas to fruition. And I think, obviously, with people like Jose Andres, and you're seeing this idea that there are a lot of other ways to cook and to help and, and I, I, would, I would definitely predict that younger chefs are going to start to, to yeah.
0: get involved. Uh, well, we unfortunately have to bring this conversation to a close because we've been talking for almost an hour. Um, just the last thing I guess I'd like to ask is what are you, since you're both kind of um, taking on these formidable odds, it's almost like a David and Goliath like, you know, dynamic with the big school systems. What do you each do to keep yourself um, charged?
2: So I love good food. So, I, <laughs> <that's> just, <laughs> no, friends and family, and um, I, I- I think that that's kind of a a key piece. And I think the other piece is going back to one of the things I have always um, asking for is stories from the schools. So I have, you know, lots of schools that are sending me stories of individual student impacts. Mm. Try harder, I'm going to think of often, because that comes (laughs) up a lot. But like, I think actually having it be personalized and having it not just be numbers, but be like, okay, this, you know, this actually made a difference for this student. And, you know, very recently, there was a student who was a really gifted soccer player and had some eligibility eligibility issues based on on grades and these teachers came behind and then he ended up you know winning this you know kind of big game and having so this sure he here. able to play yes and and the, kind of the things that have happened but like those types of things you think at at night where you're like that family celebrating that the kids in the paper and he if it went to have that team together he went to him and on the field and yep. kind of where his life's at it feels really good
0: Yep. um And, Angie, the best way for people to learn more about the bar strategy and system and organization is a website?
2: Yes, www.barcenter.org.
0: Barcenter.org.
2: B-A-R-R.
0: Yep. Excellent. How about you in terms of staying uh, as highly charged, it's I can't imagine you slowing down down.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's the idea that when you work you have to you have to recalibrate how you judge success. If you work in a restaurant or find out a restaurant or a place like Noma, like if we ever if people literally didn't say it was the best meal they ever had in their life, let alone didn't like it, it was a problem. You are crushed. So in schools it's almost the opposite. And I think if you're not present and like for example last year I was spending a lot of time doing a variety of things trying to keep the business going, move forward, visit other districts meetings in New York City you become you're not in the schools as often and you all you hear about is the issues the problems and it does beat you down all it takes if you go to a school and you're in a school and you see a couple positive things happening that otherwise wouldn't be happening or a kid eating the food who otherwise wouldn't be eating that food that's all it takes for you to be like this is it this is worth it so you just have to recalibrate I think the way you judge success and for me the more present I am in the schools and this year I'm trying to be in a school basically every day, it, you can glean enough from that to keep you super excited about moving forward.
0: I want to thank you so much. Dan Giusti, uh, absolutely terrific what you're doing with thank Brigade. You. Really inspiring. Can't wait to see where it goes. I know it's got an incredible future ahead of it. And the foundation you've laid is, you know, it feels like it's just ready to turbocharge. Hope so. Um, Angie Jarabek, uh, the bar system, so important for what our kids are doing in barcenter.org got it is the website um so folks ought to take a look at that and find out how they can get involved um i'm here with my sister debbie shore in our washington studio uh i'm billy shore thank you for listening to add passion and stir i want to thank our producer uh paul whittle woody and district productive the best place to go for podcasts um and our team at share our strength and the no kid hungry campaign and our colleague kelly griffin who helps with this podcast day in and day out um, I hope you'll go to our uh, website. I hope you'll go to Apple. Uh, I hope you'll find ways to rate us and rank us and subscribe and uh, share this uh, podcast with your friends. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody
2: Woodhall.